0: Welcome to the Simple Church Podcast, where we're committed to helping you know God, find freedom, discover your purpose, and make a difference. Let's get to today's message. My name's Aaron, I'm the lead pastor here. I want to say thank you for uh, being here today. We are in week four of this series called Dang James, where essentially we are studying the book of James that is found in your Bible. Now, this isn't a, a whole book. It's actually a letter uh, that James wrote to a church that was experiencing some major persecution. And into that scenario, the very first church that ever existed, James, who was one of the pastors and also uh, the brother of Jesus, speaks. Uh, writes this letter to a church that is in turmoil. And that's kind of the backdrop for this letter that we've been looking at this, these past couple weeks. Now, the series is called Dang James uh, because if you're new to this uh, or to the book of James or to this series is because James speaks with authority and he speaks like a man who is on mission who was also convinced of the very words that he is speaking. And so he doesn't mince words. He doesn't he doesn't say things all flowery. He doesn't take a long time to say it. He kind of gets right to the point and sometimes that feels a little aggressive and has us saying yeah so if you're new to it that's what we do around here during this series we're going dang James because it's hard to hear sometimes but that shaking or that that interruption to our thought pattern maybe will get to our hearts in a way that that uh, nothing else will and so James is is an important book and uh, in fact today if you hear something uh, that, that maybe you're, you're somebody that shouts hallelujah or says amen. In this series, we're going Dang James. So on three, everybody try it together. One, two, three. Dang there you go. You can shout it out anytime you'd like to, and that'll be just great. So here's where we've been. Now, this letter is a cohesive letter, right? So he's writing this to this church that is currently being persecuted. They're being persecuted because they have their faith placed in Jesus. And though they used to gather publicly together, the, the uh, governing, governing officials, the religious leaders, have given the locals the authority to per- persecute them in the form of beatings, imprisonment, and some of them are even being dragged off to be killed. This is the environment that James is writing this letter to, and, and he writes to this church who is now scattered. Of course they're scattered. They're scared. They, they don't want to wind up beaten. They don't want to be, be imprisoned, and goodness knows They don't want to die, and so they're scattered. They're meeting privately, and so James would send this letter out, and it was their custom to copy the letter and then send it on to another church that wouldn't be meeting in somebody's home privately. That's who he writes to, and he starts off and opens his book and says, hey, count it all joy when trials and tribulations come your way. Dang, James. That was the right moment for it, by the way. Um, but But he opens up, and he says, all this stuff you're going through... You're going through it for a reason and for a purpose. And even though it's it's uncomfortable, God has purpose in it and will use it for your good, for his glory. And he just wants them to know that the stuff you're going through, you can be joyful about it on the front side instead of joyful on the other side when you've experienced some spiritual maturity and you finally see what God is doing. No, 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 no. You can just, on the front side, trust that what God is doing as you're walking through the pain that it's good. So be joyful. <laughs> Dang, James, it's tough. That's tough to do. And then, in, and, and then he says he understands because we're going through trials that we're also going to be tempted. What are we going to be tempted to do? Well, to, to leave the discomfort. And, and most of the time what that looks like is us following our own ways, doing our own things in order to, to, to uh, escape that discomfort. And the Bible says that when we start doing things our way and not God's, it's sin. And so James lets them know, you're going to go through trials. As a result of those trials and the tough stuff you're going to go through, there's going to be the temptation, but you can beat both. And so he tells you how to do that. In week two, he says, the foundation that you stand on must be God's word. That's how you stand in trials. That's how you stand through temptation. Certainly worked for Jesus when the devil tempted him. He said, it is written. He pointed to God's word. But in week two, James, James challenges the thinking about the word, that the word of God must be preeminent. It must be authoritative. It must be. We have to fully believe that it is God's word or fully believe that it isn't. There's no middle ground. And he says, and if you're one of those people that is vacillating back and forth between, well, it's true, and well, it's not, then he says, don't think you're going to get anything from God. He says, the word is important. And so in week two, we, we explored the authoritativeness of God's word. Last week, James starts to address, he says, okay, there's going to be trials and tribulations, and okay, you got to have a firm foundation to stand on. And by the way, while you're busy standing on this firm foundation, understand that there is going to be something that is going to try to break up your effectiveness as a church. It's going to try to break you up and scatter you even further. There are going to be instigators... They're going to come along and try to cause disunity among you. And he addresses that all through the book. And the first one that he called out last week was favoritism, discrimination, that there's an us and a them. And he gives a very visceral way to look at it. And he says, we've got to start seeing right so that we can see. And we need to see people the way God sees people, that everybody is made in God's image and that there is nobody that is higher than or less than you that is walking this earth today. We're all the same. We're all created in God's image. Today, James is going to address another instigator of division. He wants to get his arm, arms around this because it's an important thing, that they experience unity so that they can all make an eternal difference together. Because, man, when we do it together, we make a greater difference, don't we? And so the enemy knows that, and he wants to divide us. And so James is going to come at this issue, and this is an issue today that he addresses of doctrine. Oh, you're like, all right, Aaron, I'm checked out. That sounds boring. Absolutely not. No, thank you. Can't we do the fun stuff this week? (laughs) No, let me tell you what doctrine is. Doctrine is a belief or a set of beliefs that are held by and then taught by people groups. So here at Simple Church, we have doctrine. And our doctrine, what we believe, is based on something. For us, it's the Bible. We believe what the Bible teaches. And in fact, there are these 16 fundamental truths that we believe that are on our website. These are the basics. And then everything else in Scripture, we read and understand. Like We we believe what the Bible says. And churches tend to be biblically based. They tend to. I say tend to because there's oftentimes a lot of man-made traditions that have crept their way into our denominations and into our churches that have nothing to do with the Bible. Essentially, it becomes something that we call Jesus plus doctrine. It's that Jesus plus something else is necessary for salvation. We don't believe that. We believe Jesus is enough, but there's some churches that believe the Bible and then they add stuff to it. But even the churches that are biblically sound, they don't agree on everything with everyone. In fact, different doctrines have developed. Schisms have occurred. Church splits have happened over doctrinal issues. You say, Aaron, what are these doctrinal issues that would divide the people of God? Baptism is one of them. You know that? Baptism, there are some churches that baptize babies. And they say well if you get baptized as a baby then you're set for heaven and eternity. That's not how I read my Bible. But it's what they believe. There are some churches that are like hey we're going to sprinkle you. There's some that are just going to pour a little bit of water over your head. There's some churches that believe you're going you have to be dunked. We're a Dunkin kind of church. We think that you need not Dunkin like you know donuts but like we are a dunking, I'll be clear, dunking. We we baptize you. We we immerse you in water. But you know there are some churches that believe that too, but they go a step further. They actually have four people surrounding the tank that you get dunked in, holding down every part of your body, and then when you go under the water, everybody looks around and verifies that every single part of you is under the water, because if every single part of you isn't under the water, then it didn't take you, you're not saved, you're not going to heaven. <sighs> this is bad. That's not what we believe, by the way. I don't think there's any way that you're going to get baptized that you get to heaven and St. Peter's going to go, no, you can't come in. You said the wrong words. You did the wrong thing. Sorry. I just don't think it's going to happen. The Lord's Supper is something that is doctrinally divisional. Who can take it? I, I went to a service at a church. It was a funeral, and I was not allowed to take the Lord's Supper. I'm like... I'm a pastor at a church down the road, but I, I'm not allowed to take the Lord's Supper here. There's people that they let take it that they don't. There's people that believe that the Lord's Supper is symbolic, that he gave it to us just to remember him. The the bread and the and the wine or the grape juice that like we serve is symbolic. That we use it to reflect and to think about it. But other people believe, other churches believe in something called transubstantiation. That's this miracle that when the pastor takes the bread and hands it to you, it becomes the literal body of Christ. And that when you drink the the wine or the grape juice, it is literally the blood of Christ. That you are feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. We don't believe that here. Prayer. They they believe it needs to be prim and proper and you only speak what the scripture says versus we think you can just talk to God anyway. Talk to him like he's your friend. Talk to him like you would talk to your friends. That's how we talk to God. We approach him like children do. Then there's the, the doctrine of holy days. Which day is the right day to have church? Some say that it's Sunday. Some say, believe that it's only Saturdays. Some churches are just glad to have a place on any old day to gather together and worship. Then there's division over the gifts of the Spirit. There are people that believe the gifts of the Spirit were only given for that first church. And then after that time period, the gifts cease to be. That there's no longer healings. There's no longer miracles. And I'm here to tell you that, yes, there are. I've got people sitting in this room that are literally miracles themselves, have experienced miracles. When the doctors said, no, they couldn't have a child, Uh uh-oh, I've seen God move. He still does things. and So we have cessationists versus charismatics. Now, we're not charismaniacs, right? We ain't having like a crazy service here, but we believe in the gifts of the Spirit that they're still operational today. Salvation is a hotly debated doctrine that is salvation something that we have free will over? Is it something that we get to choose and that, that salvation is free for anybody who wants it? Or... There's this doctrine called predestination, that you don't have a choice, that God's already picked who's going to heaven and who's not. We don't believe that here. We believe salvation is free for anybody. Tithing is debated. Is it just for the Old Testament? Is it for us today? We believe it's for us today. God's will, there's, there's doctrines that say, well, we can't know God's will, but the Bible says we can know God's will. He's revealed it to us in his word, and he'll reveal it to us by his spirit. Bible translations are hotly debated. Unless you speak the, those, those and thines and all, the, all that stuff, the King James Version, well, there's nothing else that'll work. Listen, the King James Version was an early translation, but it is a translation because your Bible's written in Old Hebrew and Old Greek. Anybody here speak and read that stuff? I didn't think so. So you need a translation. And King James isn't the only one. I'll read from all kinds of translations around here. But these are things that divide people and churches split. They lack unity over these very things. James understands doctrine can be something that divides people. And so he wants to come right at this very issue, a very, very prominent issue. And it's the doctrine of faith and works. That's today's topic. He knows that it will divide people, so he wants to bring Clarity to it because he understands the power of unity. He wants to protect it. He needs their minds right about the matter or it will further divide them and scatter them. More division would lead to a a disruption of their effectiveness, not to mention getting this thing wrong about faith and works in regards to your salvation. If you get this wrong, it leads to spiritual death. That's a pretty big deal. And essentially, here's what the wrong idea is. Here's the doctrine he's coming at. It's basically the idea that salvation requires you to do something to earn it. That's what he's coming at. That salvation ultimately comes from your faith and your works, the stuff that you do. That in order for you to be saved, you got to put your trust and your faith in Jesus, but then you got to do something. Really what happens is, is when, it, when it is that way, when it's based on you trusting Jesus and you doing something, when your salvation is, is like that, it puts the burden of your salvation not on you, or puts it on you and not on the shoulders of Jesus. And I don't know about you. Working for salvation changes things. Because in the Bible, it says that salvation is a gift. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.8. For it's by grace, in other words, getting something you don't deserve, that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. It's a gift, guys. A gift. How many of you have ever worked oh, your, your work week? And your boss comes up to you with your paycheck in hand that he's got wrapped with a bow. And he says, you know what? You've been working so hard this week. I want to give you a gift. Here's your paycheck. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That's not a gift. That's something you worked for. That's something that you earned. It's something that you deserve. Salvation, my friends, is not something we deserve. It's also not something that we can earn. It is given to us by grace we don't deserve it and Isaiah 64 6 it tells us that our best at living right our best at an attempt to earn salvation Isaiah says that our righteousness our right way of living is like filthy rags pause somebody must know what I'm about to say because filthy rags what that means is a rag that they wouldn't touch It's a rag that if they touched it, it would make them unclean. It's a rag that nobody wanted to be around. What they're talking about is a rag that would have been used for a woman's menstrual cycle. They're like, the best you can do is that. That's the best. The best we can do isn't good enough. There's no work we can do. There's no deed we can do. There's no sacrifice we can make that is sufficient to pay the price for our sins. Only Jesus could do that because Jesus was born. He walked this earth for 33 years. He was tempted but never sinned. And he gave his life as a ransom to pay a price for all of us. He died. He rose from the dead. And because of that, that is why we get to experience salvation. We get to experience freedom. Because God loved us so much that he gave us a gift, his son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus paid our debt. It is a demonic ideology that is perpetrating the world today that we have anything to do to be saved. You have nothing you need to do. Religion, which is not what Jesus came to establish, says that there is stuff for you to do. But my, my friends, I'm telling you today that what Jesus came to do was pay your price. Not establish a religion so that you have a bunch of works to do. That's not what he did. He paid the price and it is done. There's nothing left to do. On the cross, he said, it is finished. You... Feeling like there's something you need to do to earn your salvation is like trying to pay a check when somebody's already paid it for you at a restaurant. You're going to confuse the waiter, and it's not going to happen. And it's like trying to pay when you don't have enough money. <clears throat> it's pointless. Jesus paid for our sins once and for all, and we need to trust that. Salvation is free for us, but it cost him Everything. And the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 9, that when we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose from the dead, we believe that in our hearts and we confess with our mouths, then we're saved. So that settles that. There's nothing that you and I need to do in order to be saved except simply believe. Unfortunately, though, this is where a lot of Christians' experiences end. We end at the moment of confession. We end because we're like, oh, so wait, if I pray this prayer... Then I get fire insurance, I don't go to hell, and, and, and I get to be saved. All I have to do is confess with my mouth, that's it. And so they do. They confess with their mouths. They, they pray this prayer, but nothing's happened in their hearts. They go, well, I gotta start looking the part. If I'm gonna belong here, I gotta start looking like a Christian on the outside. But they have no real internal transformation. Some would even call this a false conversion where we said some things in order to avoid some pain, but we didn't really mean it, and nor did we have faith in our heart. We profess that faith, but we don't really have it because the confession seems easy enough. Just say these words. It's kind of like a magic incantation at that point. All I do is say the prayer, and I'm saved. I got to start looking the part so I really fit in then. So we find what we have is a lot of cultural Christians. That's what we call it cultural Christians. Oh, they pick up on the culture. They pick up on the habits. So we dress this way. So we talk this way. So, so we show up for church. We carry a Bible. We don't read it, but we have one. I've got all the translations. Read it. I own it. It's mine. I got it. We start to dress different, talk different. We even got the Jesus fish bumper sticker on our car. By the way, it's the thing that's holding the bumper on our car as well. hmm <laughs> We've got the Christianese T-shirts. We might even quit drinking. We might have quit smoking. We like the self-help part of Jesus, but not the part that challenges our hearts. We like to ride the pews and allow others to serve us. We watch The Chosen, TBN, Sound of Freedom, Jesus Revolution, and we know all the words to Mercy me, I can only imagine. Come on, somebody. We start, <laughs> on the outside, we start to look like Christians. We start to act like Christians, but we have no fruit in our lives. We're not making a difference in other people's lives, and it boils down to really this version of cultural Christianity boils down to two words, and it's lip service. It's lip service. Isaiah warned about it. Jesus declared that it is true that these people, he's pointing to the people in the church, the religious people, he said, they honor me with their lips. They're saying good things, but their hearts are far from me. He calls this out because he knew that nothing would change in their lives. They live their lives the same internally while acting and looking like they are religious. Jackie Hill Perry, who is an author and a pastor and preacher, I heard her speaking recently to a group of people, and she was, she was saying, you know, if you've been in Christianity for a long time, and you're still walking in a way that is merely human, you need to be concerned. That if you sit underneath this incredible teaching week after week here at Simple Church, And your life isn't changed. You ought to be rethinking some things. And I agree. Real faith. That's okay. It's cool. Siri's got this. (laughs) Real faith will do something in you. You know that? It won't leave you the same. Real faith will move you to action. And James, James wants to address this idea of faith alone. That yes, faith alone is required for salvation. But a real faith, a living faith, will lead to works. It'll lead to action. And here's the idea for the entire message today, that faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives. That if you have faith, there's going to be fruit of it. That if you have faith, there's going to be more than just lip service. That in other words, there'll be an output. There'll be works that'll show up. There'll, there'll be something that the rest of the world will see in your life and go, that's what makes them different. James starts off in chapter 2, verse 14. You say, like, dang, James, we just get into the text? Yes, we are. Here we go. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? In other words, they're not doing nothing. They, they, they said they're saved. They won't even get baptized. They, they won't even take a, that step of faith. Can such faith save them? So what James is doing is he's setting up this argument for us that that faith alone leads to salvation, but a real living faith will lead to good deeds. Faith is not just saying I believe something. Faith must be demonstrated. It must be shown outwardly by what we do with our lives. Do you know what I love? TikTok. And do you know what I love to watch on TikTok? TikTok. I think one of my favorite things to watch is when people fall down. <laughs> I've fallen a couple times myself. I have video of it. I fell walking in the back door back here, laughed so hard I sent it to all my friends. I don't even know what I fell in. I'm just a klutz. I don't know. Just boom, straight down. I like videos, seeing videos of people fall. My wife, we got a famous video of my wife. Maybe I'll play it for you next week. Her coming out the front door and just stepping on some ice and some house slippers and falling so hard. uh, that I mean, it was bad. And then me rolling down the window. Hey, babe, don't come down the stairs. They're icy. As she's laying on. I didn't see her. The windows were fogged from the ice. I like videos where people fall down. But you know where I don't want to be? In a video where I'm falling down. I don't like that. I don't want to show up on your For You page, thank you very much. It's not anything I want. That's why if I come into a place where you are, it's unfamiliar to me, and you're inviting me to have a seat, I carefully survey the seating options. Because I'm a big guy. And I've seen those videos where the big guys sit in the plastic chairs and the legs just go, nope, not today. And next thing I know, the big guy's on the ground wallowing like this because he can't get up. The chair's stuck on him, and he doesn't know what to do. And everybody's laughing. And in that moment, it's a moment I don't want to be in. So I look at chairs carefully. I don't want to be on the ground. If it's plastic and looks rickety, might be be the most comfortable chair in your house, but I'm going to have to say no thank you. Because even if it's the most comfortable, if it looks rickety to me, I will sit in it and be the most uncomfortable person in the room. Because all I will think about and sweat about is whether or not this thing is going to go. If it's going to give up the ghost, I don't want it to be under my derriere. It's true. And so, when I believe a chair will not hold me, I don't sit in it. But if I believe the chair will hold me, I don't have to talk about it. Do you know what I do? I sit in it. I demonstrate my belief through my actions. I just go sit because I believe that it will hold me. My faith in the chair is expressed by my choice to sit in it. And faith in our hearts will be expressed by outward actions by good deeds, by the works that God has for us. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter seven, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is dark, no? little ominous he says thus by their fruit you will recognize them then and today we recognize an apple tree by one thing you know what it is yeah there's apples on it that's right we know it's an apple tree because it's got apples on it apple trees don't grow pears pear trees do you can tell a tree by its fruit and you can tell a christ follower by their works but there's a bigger question here James is teaching what Jesus taught, but the question here is, is it possible to have a faith that leads you to doing nothing? James and Jesus both say it isn't possible. That salvation requires faith alone in Christ, but real faith will have real fruit, that they'll be a product of your life. Jesus even said that these trees that don't produce fruit, they get tossed into the fire. Faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives. So James is setting up this argument here, and he plays both sides of it, but he lands on a simple statement, a simple summary that I'll say to you, no fruit, no faith. No fruit, no faith. If there's no fruit or there's no evidence of of good works attached to your faith, then there's no faith at all. That what we've seen or experienced in that person is merely lip service. James is about to give us a great example to see and feel what he's talking about here. He says in verse 15, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. So these guys are hungry and naked. That's a wicked combination. You want to talk about somebody that's angry. They're hangry. And they've got no clothes. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody who is cold. My wife is always cold. Pastor Kyle is always cold. And when they are cold, they're not happy so they're now hungry, and they're naked, and you come along, and you see them. He says, and then one of you says to him, go in peace. <laughs> Have you ever looked at your wife, men and said, calm down? This is the equivalent of it. Don't do it. That, that's, a, that's a smack on the wrist quick. You don't say calm down. Never in the history of ever telling anybody to calm down has it ever brought them to calm down. But here he says, they're using words. These sound nice. They sound Christian-y. Oh, you're hungry and you're naked? Go in peace. Keep warm and well-fed. But does nothing about their physical needs? He says, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. You not doing something, actually acting to do something to deal with their hunger, to deal with their nakedness. You say, I got faith in Jesus. I believe in him. You take care. You have peace. Listen, they're not going to have peace. Peace until their basic needs are met. They're not even concerned about their spiritual condition because their basic needs aren't even met yet. We offer them something spiritual. This is called spiritual bypass, by the way. I'm going to say something spiritual, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Put the pressure on you to fix your problem. James says that kind of faith. No fruit, no faith. He said it's dead. But He's basically saying, do you even Christian, bro? Do, Do you even... Sadly, too many of us do this in our everyday lives. We'll run into a friend at the grocery store, and and that friend begins to share with us the the tragedy of their lives, what's going on. You can see it all over them. They're sullen, they're sad. And they share their their situation, their story of pain, and you slap them on the shoulder and say, praying for you. Sending you thoughts and, and good vibes. My friends, if you really believed that the God of the universe put his spirit inside of you and that the answer to their need in that moment you have access to by simply praying, if you really believe that, you're not going to pray later. We're a church that prays first. We're also a church that's going to get on board with praying now. I don't care if you're in the middle of a grocery store. I don't care if you're in a gym working out. I don't care where you're standing. If you really believed and you had a real faith that believes that Jesus is the answer, you will not hesitate to say, let's pray now. Let's pray now. Why wait? Why would you delay giving them what they need most? An answer from heaven. We'll pray now. Real faith will stir you to act in those moments. Real faith will stir you to pray and intercede for people. It will stir you to sacrifice your time, your money, your agenda, your privileges, and your rights. It will stir you to live like a person on mission. It will stir you to share your story and Jesus with others. A faith that is alive, a living faith, moves us to act on behalf of others so we can make an eternal difference in their lives. Martin Luther said this It is impossible to separate or take sides on faith or works. It is as trying to separate a burning flame from its brightness. They are connected. Faith and works are connected. Faith and works are not necessary for salvation, but works are necessary to prove you have a real faith. If you have a living faith, you'll have works to show for it. No fruit no faith. He further goes on to explain that a deedless faith is a useless faith. What good is a faith that doesn't change us from the inside out is what James is going to ask us. A faith that gets to our hearts will ultimately get to our heads and then it'll get to our hands. Because a faith that softens our hearts towards the things of God, we begin to think about our lives differently. And when we begin to think about our lives differently, we begin to act and behave differently. Goes heart, head, hands changes us. Too many of us, though, just settle for cultural Christianity. We settle for behavior modification. We like to look the part. But James says that our faith isn't about lip service. And if it is, he doesn't want it, and neither should you, because it's not producing any life in you. And so now he takes the other side of the argument, and he says in verse 18, but someone will say, so this is a hypothetical someone, you have faith, but I've got deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll go ahead and show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James is like, hey, guys, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. It's time to put your money where your mouth is. You say you have faith. You say that faith is, well, my faith is I believe in God. He says, congratulations. The demons believe in that too. That kind of faith isn't a transforming kind of faith, to believe that God exists. That's not a faith that will get a hold of your heart. It's nothing to believe in God. But to have your faith in him, do you trust him? Do you accept his word and his ways for your life? Are you following his way of doing things? James says, I'll show you my faith by my deeds, by the way that I live my life. No need to say I have faith. He says, you'll see the fruit. St. Francis of Assisi said this, and I love this preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. The message you are preaching is your life that is lived in obedience to God's word. That's how you preach. Because I I hear from people all the time well, I don't tell people about Jesus because I don't know how to preach, and I'm not this eloquent speaker. I don't know what to say. I'm not a preacher. You don't have to preach. Just show people your faith by living according to God's word. That's all you have to do. Simply be obedient to it. Let it be preeminent in your life. Without deeds that are springing from a real living faith, your faith is useless. It's useless. It won't help. It doesn't serve anybody. It's just wind at that point. It's lip service. Deedless faith is a useless faith. James makes things hyper clear now. He pulls no punches and the statement in the summary for this little section is that faith, faith that saves always produces good works and is based on God's saving work in Jesus Christ. Now, we've already established this, but James is going to go ahead and slide it in here. In verse 20, he says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Here we go. He rolls up his sleeves. We're going to get to work now. Thank you. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Pause. Some of you don't know that story. Abraham was, uh, they call him Father Abraham because he is the father of the Jewish nation. God approached him and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And through your seed, all of humanity would be blessed. When you follow the bloodline of Jesus back through time, it is started at Abraham. God calls Abraham and says, I'm going I'm to bless the world through your, through your seed. And Abraham's like, I don't have kids, and I'm an old man. Abraham was way old, very old, close to 100. And God promises him this child. And God delivers. He gives he and his wife, who are elderly as well, a child in their exceedingly old age, and they named him Isaac. And this promised child, that the blessing was going to come to all of the world through God calls to Abraham and says, hey, I know you love your son. I need you to sacrifice him on a mountain. And so Abraham, can you imagine the tension in the home? He faced that. He took his son and explained to his wife. And then he had to explain to his son what was going to happen when his son said, hey, we don't have any lambs. You're it, kid. And his son submitted to the father's will as well. As he bound him and laid him on a, an altar, helped him build it, collect the sticks for it. And Abraham obeyed God to the point of a knife. And an angel stopped his hand from sacrificing his son. And God provided a lamb. Abraham was tested. And his faith in God was demonstrated by what he chose to do, to obey. And is in his obedience, it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the story. James continues in verse 22. He says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Why? Because he began to express his faith, not just in speaking it, but in actions. And it says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Man, I want that for you. I want that for me. I want us to be God's friend. He said, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. There is works, there are deeds that are attached to your faith that when you are saved and you place your faith in God, you'll do what he says for you to do. And God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, which wasn't easy, but he obeyed God to the point of a knife. And when we get saved by faith, that faith brings deeds that God has for us to do as well. And it's all written in his word. God makes it clear how we are to live our lives. Paul reminds us, again, back to that verse in Ephesians 2.8, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works so that anyone can boast, for we are God's handiwork, watch this, created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Listen, friends, that's why I want you to get into Growth Track. Growth Track happens every Sunday, the first, second, third, and fourth Sundays of the month. And it happens right after service. And in Growth Track, you'll have a chance to understand how to connect to our church, develop your leadership, and even get on a team here. But the most important thing you'll do is explore God's design in you because we believe that God's design in you reveals his destiny for you. That the way he has wired you and made you speaks to the way that you can make a difference here on this earth. And there are opportunities inside this church and outside this church that we will talk to you about. Growth track is important so that you can understand God has work he prepared for you, for you, and he designed for you to do. He formed you in the womb to the exact specifications of the work that he prepared for you to do in Christ. Some, he's called to full-time ministry like I do that, that, that there are apostles, the basically church planners, special messengers. There are pastors, teachers, evangelists, and prophets. But there's others of you that he has ministry that he's prepared for you in your personal lives, in your community, in your home, in your family, in your church, to love and serve like Jesus did. And how did he do that? Well, he went around doing good, preaching the gospel, and healing people. That's what our reputation could be like, guys. We could have that reputation. I remember during the pandemic when everything closed... Everything was closed down. It was early on. We were all scared. We were all sheltering in our houses. And I started getting this itch because I love the Lord, and I know that God loves his people. And I thought, my goodness, how do I serve people in this new environment? How do I get involved? How do I still express this faith that is within me? And I thought, you know what? I'll bet, I'll bet they're still serving the homeless downtown at, Dream, at the Dream Center. And guess what they were? And so I strapped on a mask and I went down there. People were like, Aaron, aren't you scared you're going to get COVID? Nope. If I get COVID and it takes my life to be absent from the bodies, to be present with Christ, and there's a dance party that will commence in that moment, y'all. I'm not enamored with this world and what a way to go out. I got COVID because I served some people that were underserved and underprivileged. I'll go out that way every day. That's fine with me. And so I went down and I served because I felt, I felt like I couldn't sit around and do nothing. I have a live and living faith on the inside of me that I have to do something with. And I didn't care if I got COVID. Why? Because saved people serve people. Faith that saves always produces good works. And just so we're clear, this faith isn't just for the people we like and think are good enough for it. Because let's just be really clear. No one is excluded from God's scandalous grace. No one. Now, Abraham was wealthy. He came from a good home. He was married to his sweetheart. He was well-traveled. He he was generous. He was kind. The Bible tells us that he was valiant and strong as well. He's easy. It's easy to look at Abraham and go, yeah, bro, you belong in this group. It's easy to look at him and say, you know what, you can can be here. But what about those people? You know the ones. The ones that don't belong. The ones that shouldn't have a part in in our community. James says in verse 25, in the same way, so he's following this up after Abraham talked about his right way of living. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Now it's been a long time. See, Rahab's story happened hundreds of years before. Hundreds. Why are they still calling her a prostitute? Why is that still showing up there? It's because God wants you to know that no one, no one is exempt from his scandalous grace. That everybody can belong. Everybody can. She was considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies. Her, her story is told in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. Read the stories, it's great. She's a prostitute. Spies that Joshua, who was now leading after Moses had died to conquer the promised land, send spies into Jericho. They go and find refuge at the prostitute's house. Now, I have questions, but those can come later. I'm just saying. You're sent in to spy, and you wind up at the prostitute's house? Anyway. How did that report back to Joshua go? Uh, yeah, we found this really nice lady. She was pretty. (laughs) Left that one out of the report, did ya? I just have questions but they go in and they find Rahab and Rahab decides to turn her back on all of her people and put her faith in their God because God has a reputation he's brought them out of Egypt his reputation precedes him and she knows that this country is going to be conquered and she's like if I help you will you make sure that my family is saved and they said yes and Rahab and her family were spared when Jericho was destroyed And Rahab, by the way, is included in the bloodline of Jesus. Those people, they're welcome in our faith. They're welcome in our church family. Those people, God has something for them to do. Sam say, yeah, but you don't know what they've done. They're an adulterer. They broke up a marriage. They broke up a home. They're an addict. They, 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 they spent their lives in... Everything, getting drugs and alcohol, destroyed their lives and destroyed others. Or they've got a record. They're felons. Well, they're abusers. They've hurt people with their words. They've hurt people with their hands and their actions or their scammers. They've lied, tricked people, and stolen from them. Friends, not only do they belong, but God has planned something for them to do. See, we serve a God who brings dead things back to life, but we also serve a God who turns messes into messages. He has something for them to do. And I believe this because I was a scoundrel myself, that I was a prodigal son. I left my father's house, my spiritual father's house, wandered and did things on my own, wound up abandoning my faith, wound up married and divorced, wound up bankrupt emotionally, spiritually, relationally, financially, literally bankrupt. Lost everything. Everything. And in my brokenness, I came back to God, I have nothing to offer you. And I was accepted and I was loved. And I came to a church, angry and bitter at God, couldn't stand his people, couldn't tell you that I had any kind of faith, I just knew this is where I needed to be and where my family needed to be. And I went to the pastor, I'm not gonna serve, I'm not gonna give, I'm not gonna have any fruit here. I'm here because you're funny and I want my kids to know God even if I can't stand him. And then something happened. I kept showing up at that church and God started working on my heart. And as he softened my heart towards the offense that I held, the bitterness that was in my heart, I learned to forgive. Next thing you know, I started thinking about serving and about joining a small group, and I did. Something changed in me. I found freedom from my pornography addiction. God transformed my heart, and I started thinking different, and I started behaving different. I said, I'm going to serve. Where do you guys need somebody? They said, well, we really need somebody at the 8 o'clock shift. For a church that starts at 8.30, you need to show up at 7 a.m. to get the coffee ready. You know what I did? That. 7 a.m. at the church. I had three little ones to wake up and a a wife. Let's go. She hated that. Can't we serve at the 11.30 service, Aaron? (sighs) But something had got a hold of my life, my heart. We started serving there. I joined a small group. Next thing you know, I'm leading a group and serving in the cafe, that early service. And then I found out that they needed the building clean. And I said, my family will clean it once a month for you. And I would mop those floors and praise God with tears streaming down my face that he loved a sinner like me, a scoundrel like me, a liar like me. Save people, serve people. You can't help it when your heart has been transformed by this gospel. You cannot help it. It'll transform you from the inside out. And no one is excluded from God's scandalous grace. James buttons it all up with another clear statement faith without works is not faith at all. He says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's not alive. It's not serving you well. You need to have your heart transformed. Because I can relate to the prophet Jeremiah who said, God's given me so much to say that if I try to just sit on it, it's like fire in my bones. I've got to get it out, I've got to do something with it. A faith that is alive will do something in you. When you accept Jesus, God doesn't fill you with His Spirit so you can be the best version of yourself. He fills you with his spirit and empowers you to live a life he's called you to live and do the work he's called you to do. Jesus said to his disciples, you're the light of the world, the whole world. You're it. And he gives them several examples. He says a city built on a hill can't be hid. Then he talks about a lamp. He says no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead they put it on a lampstand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, you are, must. He doesn't leave it as an option. He doesn't say, hey, you got to talk a good game. You got to preach eloquently. No. You must, your light must shine before people. How do we do that? How? Good things you do. He tells us. So that they'll see the good things you do, and what do they do? They'll praise your Father in heaven. Best best evangelism tool we've got. That means telling people about Jesus. It's your life lived in humble obedience. A life of faith that requires works. Oh, that we would understand this that the best thing we can do is be obedient. Be obedient to the word that James talked about. It's God's word. Live our lives according to it. We'll let our lives shine, and others will see that our life is different. And that what we have is better, and it will point them to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I know that this is a challenging message. I can tell by how quiet it got in this room. (laughs) You're at work. And today you told me that you were giving me a special grace for this day. A special grace for this message. And God, I'm praying that each and every one of us would embrace that grace you have for us today. Lord, the grace that allows us to see when and where we've been living a life just based on lip service, where we've been Christian in name only, where we've not surrendered our lives to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see, to see where it is that we have no fruit, to see what area of our lives we need to surrender. Maybe it's our whole lives. I'm not sure. But I know your word is clear that there, if there is no fruit, There's no faith. So help us to experience a real faith. Help us to surrender and to trust you fully, to surrender our will, to surrender our privileges and our rights. To surrender, to be obedient. Lord, I know there's there's people in this room that man, as they're listening to this, they're going, This is me. And I'm I'm not here to condemn anybody. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And so if the Lord is tugging on your heart right now, respond. Repent. Ask him for help for your next steps. I know there's also those of you in this room who have never had a relationship with God. You'd you'd be what we call far from God. I know what that's like. I lived far from God for seven years. And when I came home, I, I wasn't beaten up. Nobody shamed me. Nobody said, "Well, that's what you get for being stupid." I was embraced and I was loved. I was restored. And God put me back on a path of doing and doing the work that he had prepared for me to do. Today, if you find yourself far from God, whether you've known him before or not, you can have a relationship with him. There's got to be something real inside of you that's drawing. This is not about lip service. If you're feeling that drawing in your heart today, I'm gonna pray a prayer. I'll give you the words to say. It's not the words that do it, it's real faith in your heart that'll transform your life. So if you're ready to pray, I'm gonna pray. But if you're gonna do that, would you just slide your hand up? Would you say, Aaron, that's me today? It just encourages me. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. Guys, there are people praying this prayer today. Everybody, let's pray together. Everybody out loud. Nobody prays alone. Say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sins make me brand new. Fill me with your spirit and show me how to live for you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, heaven's having a party. Simple Church, celebrate with those who said yes to Jesus today.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. We hope it has given you hope and helped you know God a little bit more. The goal of this podcast is to reach beyond our walls and connect with people far from God. If you'd like to join us in doing that, there are several ways for you to get involved.